Now, Yahweh appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. Now, we know that this probably was just a few weeks later at the most, a couple months later at the most. Can't be too long because we're told that Abraham was, Abraham was 99 years old when God gave him the covenant sign. And we're told that he's 100 years old when Isaac is born. And in this chapter 18, we're going to be told that this time next year, Sarah is going to have a kid. So there can't be any more than three or four months between these two moments because we've got to allow at least for nine to ten months or something like that um, for Isaac to be born. We're told that Yahweh appeared to Abraham, but Abraham doesn't know this. So Abraham, in the hot of the day, is just kind of leaning back and relaxing, and he looks up, and lo and behold, there's three men just standing there by the tent. Now, a good ways off that he's got to invite them over, and far enough away that he didn't really notice them, but close enough that he can call to them. So they're out there, and he invites them in. He doesn't know who they are, and so we see this incredible hospitality of Abraham because Abraham says, please, please, don't come in and don't pass on by. Now, he's probably afraid of being seen as rude because he hasn't noticed them. So he's trying to make up for that by inviting them in and coming in, but he's also showing his hospitality because normally he says, I will give you, I'll give you some bread, okay, or some figs or whatever, or I'll give you some bread. Now, he just says, I'll give you some scraps of bread. But when he commands Sarah to, go, Sarah to go off and get the bread, he tells her to get 24 quarts of flour. That's a lot of bread. To bake into bread and then kill the cow. The cow. And then get figs and dates and goat's milk and cheeses and, and bring this out for three guys. And not Abraham and Sarah because they're going to stand on the side and not eat. Now, what he's doing is he's just promising a little bit to them, but he shows his respect and hospitality to them by giving them more than what he promised. Probably what he might have feared was if he promised them a feast to begin with, they might have felt overwhelmed and, and thought like, no, 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 that's too much for you. And they would, out of respect, said, we're not going to eat with you. And that might have been an insult to him. So then he would be putting them in a difficult place to put them at risk, insulting him, because they don't want to overbear him. So instead he offers very little so that they don't feel uncomfortable and they say yes, and then he can offer the huge feast to them to honor them and nobody's been offended. That's not uncommon in this kind of a culture. And not only that does he bake it all, but then he and Sarah would stand here and just watch the meat. Because you're, you wouldn't talk and you don't eat with them because he doesn't really know them yet. To eat with somebody is to join them and say, your family or close to family. And, and we're, we're making some kind of a covenant, not this kind of a covenant, but some kind of covenant. And they're not, he's not ready to do that. He doesn't know who these guys are. So even when, like, when I went to Israel and that kind of stuff, they would bring us in and they would say, hey, do you want some tea? And you would accept the tea and you would sit down, but they wouldn't join you because they don't know you. But, so they're honoring you with hospitality by giving it to you. But they also don't really talk to you because they, they want you to enjoy it. And the talk might ruin it. If you talk, you eat, and then you talk together in a covenant. But if I'm just showing hospitality, then I let you enjoy the meal because I made this for you. And if I talk to you and I say something that I shouldn't say or I talk too much, then I might ruin your enjoyment of the meal, and then I've dishonored you. So this is a highly honor culture here. So Abraham just watches them eat and waits, and then he allows them to initiate the conversation. And it's at this point when they begin to talk that Abraham, many of the bells are going off. Holy cow, this is God. (laughs) 
Now, we don't know who these guys are, and we know that it's God because the narrator starts off by telling us that, but notice that the way they're described is they're just three men. Okay, now some people have said this is the Trinity, but once again, for the same reason, this is not the Trinity because Christ and the Holy Spirit are not talked about in the First Testament. If this is the Trinity, holy, I mean, why doesn't any New Testament author jump on this? Like, this would be a credible proof. But at the same time, they're all described as men until we're told God begins to talk. Then it becomes very clear that he's God. And then in chapter 19, it becomes very clear that the other two men are angels. We've already talked about the whole angel Jesus thing. So the idea is that the, they're men. Now, this is what's interesting is that we've already kind of talked about this. Every time you see angels, everybody thinks that they're men. They're, the only thing that distinguishes angels from men a lot of times is not until we get to the Second Testament and a few visions where they actually have wings. But a lot of times they don't appear with wings. They appear and they just operate like men in a very physical, tangible kind of a way. But also there's something very powerful about them. There's an aura that communicates that there's, there's, these, are, these are men. These are, these are men of power. These are men of authority. And so there's an honoring going on here. And it's at that point that God then announces, this time next year, you're going to have a kid through Sarah. And this is the first time he's directly mentioned Sarah. Sarah is going to have a kid. And then at this time, Sarah laughs. Then God says, this is my, I love this. God says, why did you laugh? And Sarah's like, I didn't laugh. Yeah, you did. You're lying. It's like, oh, crap. Now, you have to give Sarah a benefit of the doubt. One, she's past menopause. She can't have kids. So part of that is like, no, no, I'm not. I'm not going to have a kid. I mean, you have to give her the benefit of the doubt. This has never happened before. So this is a biological, practical science class. Everybody knows that's not going to happen. At the same time, too, they're probably just beginning to grasp that this is God. Okay? She's not even in there now. As, as tradition would go, the woman, now after they've been served and are done eating, now that the men begin to talk, the woman would then step out and go to her own tent. And so she's just kind of listening in because she wants to know everything, but she's not about to be there for it. The reality is she's listening. So she's probably not as fully grasping the situation as Abraham, who's standing right there, who's also had more encounters with God than she has. So don't see this as a total mocking of God or a total disbelief. I'm like, how could you just say that woman? This is a, I mean, even if we know this stuff and if God appeared to us right here, that would be a huge thing to start grasping. I mean, she's in shock. She's trying to process a lot of information. So her laugh is just, that's not possible. That's never happened before. But remember, they have not been introduced to the God of resurrection yet. They have not been introduced to the God of resurrection. It's at this point that that conversation is over, and now we get to the real point of the visit. So far, God really hasn't introduced anything new except Sarah is going to have a kid, but we really didn't need an incredible visit like this from God. Now, what do we do with this visit? Because God is operating in a human level. He eats. I mean, we know God is not a human. He doesn't have a body. He's a spirit only. But it's not like food is dropping through him and hitting the floor, like a Casper scenario, okay? I don't know. Now, you must first understand that just because God doesn't have a body and he's a spirit only doesn't mean that he doesn't have physicality. 
right? So, I mean, we know that the wind is not a physical body, but it has physicality. Electricity is not a physical, but it's, it has physicality. And I think it would be very dangerous to say God can't have physicality. He's a spirit. He's God. I don't know if he creates an energy field or what. I don't know. He's God. Okay, so that's like, there's so many other things we should be talking about what God is and is not than like, can he pick up bread or not? Okay, so that's the least of our worries. But I deal with that because there's always somebody has that question. And that's a legitimate question. But at the same time, it's just like, okay, there's your answer. Let's go on. So I don't know how that works. He's God. So now God gets the true point of the visit. Should I tell Abraham what I'm about ready to do to Sodom Gomorrah? The cry of them has reached me. After all, he is going to be the father of a great nation and kings. Now what's interesting here is that God is now asking the question, should I make Abraham my prophet? After all, if he's going to be the father of a nation that will produce the redemption of humanity and produce kings and produce prophets and produce priests, then should not their own founding father who will teach them who I am be a prophet? But what God is really saying here is the word prophet we just think of a guy who predicts the future, but that's not prophet. Prophet is someone who speaks the will of God to people. But the only way you can know the will of God is if you're brought into the divine counsel of God. Now, this is a concept that we can't fully develop until you get to the kings and prophets. And the book of Job has this. But God has this thing called the divine counsel of God. And the divine counsel of God are him sitting on the throne and all these angels come to him and they operate like a congress or a great council. And God says, what should we do? And the angels all give their input and stuff and God makes decisions based on that. Now, that sounds very demeaning the way I say that, but that's the best example I can give. It does not mean that God's like, I don't know what to do. I need advice. <laughs> Like somebody come up with an, oh, that's good. And then he's a good God by not taking credit like your boss. Okay? That's not the point. The point is, in the same way that God doesn't need us to expand the garden, but he says, I want you to join me. And the same way that he doesn't need you to share the gospel, but he wants you to join him. And the same way that he does not need your input, he wants you to join him. I could just dictate to my kids all the time what to do, and I have that right as their parent. Or I can say, I know what I want to do, and what I would do is pretty good, but I want you to join me in a relationship, and let's make a decision together so that we all own this decision together. Not because I need your input, not because I need your advice, not because I but because I want you to say that you join God in doing something. And God gives us permission to join him and make decisions about how this world is going to operate because he wants to create and build a world together. Not because he needs us, but because like any parent, he wants to do things with us and build with us and be creative together. 
And this is his greatest heart desire. This is why he created us as his image and put in the garden and said, now let's build a garden together. I don't need you, but I'm a God of love and community, and I want to do this with you. And God does the same thing with the divine counsel. Now, also don't forget that he's still the one on the throne. And at any time, he can trump anybody and say, no, no, no. In fact, he does that multiple occasions, just like I could as a parent. Okay, my kids are like, let's go to Disney World. Yeah, we don't have the money for that. Let's think smaller. Okay, I'll still let you make the decision, but let's think smaller. He has that right to do that. And so what he's doing is he's inviting Abram and he's saying, come up into the divine council. Because when we get into the Bible, what we're going to find is the only human that is ever brought into the divine council are prophets. They're the only ones ever. And God's sitting up on this throne and he says, should I invite Abraham, the first human ever, into my divine council? After all, he's going to produce many people that I will invite into the divine council in the future to come. He needs to know what justice looks like. And then he says, Abraham, I invite you to intercede on the behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to wipe them out because their sin is so bad. And Abraham begins to function as the divine counsel. And he says, yes, but what if there are 50 righteous people? Will not the God of the universe do what is right? The judge of the universe do what is right? And Abram begins to give his input and says, what I know about your character, God, is this. You are a just God. You are a faithful God. You're a loving God. You, right, cannot wipe out a city that has 50 righteous people because that's not who you are. So if there's 50 righteous people, I don't think you should destroy a city with 50 righteous people. There's no such thing as collateral damage when it comes to justice, even though it is to America as a government. But to God, there's not. And to Abram, there's not. And God takes his intercession and says, you're right, I won't. Now, don't think that God is going to 40 and 30 and 20 to just kind of placate Abraham and say, hey, learn about me. God is literally saying, I'm going to wipe out this city. But here's the difficult thing about God, the tension of mercy and justice. Does God have the right to wipe out the entire city, even if there's righteous people there? Yes, because no one is truly righteous. But at the same time, the mercy and the love of God also says, I don't want to wipe out my children because I love them. In fact, I love them so much that I'm going to wipe out my own son instead on your behalf one day. And we want to oversimplify the mercy and justice of God, but you have to realize it's incredibly complicated. Wait till we get to Exodus and Moses is standing before God after the golden calf. It gets really complicated there. And there's some other places in the book of the Bible. I mean, we, we simplify God, but you have to realize God is scarier, bigger, more wild than what we have Christianized him as. And I think and it's like what C.S. Lewis said. He, no, he's not safe, but he's good. Sometimes we forget the, the wild unsafeness of God, the complexity of God. And so I can't explain what's truly going on here. It's beyond my mind. It's beyond the bigger picture of things. But what I can say is that God has every right to wipe out the city, and he could do it no matter how many righteous people there are. But God is also a merciful God, and he doesn't want to because he loves them. 
So he says, Abraham, pray for them. And if you pray, I will answer your prayers. If you don't, then I'll be just. But either way, I'm not violating my character. I don't know exactly how that works. I know that the only way that God truly can bring the mercy and the justice of God together is the cross. Because if he doesn't punish them, then he's not being truly just. Because sin is going unpunished. But if he punishes them, he's not truly being merciful and in grace. So the only place that these two things can truly come together is at the cross. Because in that, he punishes all the sins that have ever been committed. Therefore, he's truly just. But at the same time, he pours out his mercy on all people because it's not us going under the wrath of God. And this is why Romans chapter 3 says that God delayed his justice on all those sins in the past until he could bring them out on Christ at the cross. So right now, we have a God that is just and merciful, and if he wipes them out, righteous and all, he is just, but if he doesn't, he is merciful. But at the same time, he is merciful and he can't do that because there is no collateral damage. So this is the difficult tension. And God is saying, you're not going to fully comprehend this, but I invite you, Abraham, to join me in this tension. Pray for them. And I'm actually saying, I'm going to honor your request because you're in the divine counsel of God now. And so Abraham says, what about 50? What about 40? Now, here's what's interesting. This is one of the only times, one of the very few times, that a prophet of Israel intercedes on the behalf of non-covenant people. Sodom and Gomorrah is not a part of the covenant. And yeah, Abraham might be thinking of Lot. I mean, that's her first instinct. Oh, he's thinking about Lot. But then why does he start at 50? Why does he start at 50 if he's just thinking about Lot? And he goes down. Now, when he hits 10, God says, yes, I will, but I am going to bring the city to ruin. Now, he introduces the word ruin, and he introduces it in a very strong emphasis kind of way of saying, Oi, I'm coming to the end of allowing you to intercede. We're getting to the point where Sodom is going to be destroyed. And Abraham pushes his luck and says, Oi, what about five? Okay? And, or is it, I just went blank. Yes, 10, sorry. I knew that was right. The wrong, wrong. The minute I said it was wrong. So he goes 20, and God says, ruin. And Abraham goes one more and says, what about 10? Now, it's at that point that God says, okay, 10, but God walks away as in this conversation's over with. So notice how God has allowed Abraham to pull the mercy of God out, for lack of a better phrase. I don't know how else to say it without being heretical or twisting the arm of God. But at the same time, God has also said, this, I need to maintain the tension for lack of a better phrase, and this conversation's over with. And God is the one who walks away and ends the divine counsel. Now we're left with this huge tension. What is God going to do? Because there's not 10 righteous people there. We know that. Lot's family does not make 10. But at the same time, God has shown that he doesn't wipe out families and cities unjustly. Either way, he would be just. He would be merciful. And now we're left. And Abraham looks over the city like the fact that he keeps looking over the city, wondering what's going to happen, means that Abraham doesn't even know, like, 
I don't know where we ended this conversation on. I mean, I, I realize I was given an incredible privilege, but I don't know where this thing ends. And God sends, and notice he's already sent the angels off. They're already making their way to Sodom and Gomorrah, which means he's already decided it's going to be destroyed. The question is just who and how. And so Abraham's overlooking it. 